Namaste and good evening to all of you. I'm very happy to be again with you here tonight. And um, on a bit of an impulse, I decided to restart the series of teachings after quite a number of years in which I'm uh, connecting the understanding of yoga, the metaphysical understanding of yoga. As you can see, yoga is very scientific, very rational. It explains everything through resonance, through the energy in the chakras, through the action on the five bodies, and not for the sake of just doing so and impressing, but because yoga is the result of, a, of thousands of years of experience in India, in Tibet, and in those parts of the world. And um, we are always obtaining very heart-touching effects when yoga meets with the mystical teachings, the spiritual teachings, because the yogis have always claimed that there is just one truth. Like, if you accept the idea, and again, it's not compulsory that you do, but it's one of the tenets of the great yogis. If you accept the idea that there might exist a cosmic consciousness, a universal consciousness, which is here and now, then this universal consciousness must be present in all the traditions and in all the lineages of this humanity. And you cannot say that if Buddha named it in a certain way, then it's wrong. Truth is one. As the theosophists borrowed a proverb from India, there is no religion higher than truth. And therefore, it is very specious, very weird to say, uh, Jesus saw the truth about the universe, life, evolution, God, and all that, but Buddha missed it. He was misguided and missed it altogether. Or Krishna saw what the truth is, but Muhammad shot a blank. It's obvious it's obvious that when we're talking about the great spiritual revelations, the ones which have resisted hundreds of years and thousands of years and which have produced further enlightenment, like it's not, that, it's not enough to say, oh, Muhammad was a weird man and spent his time in a dark cave and he thought that some archangel came and dictated him the Quran, a text from God. But wait a second, it's, no, we are not talking about Muhammad. We're talking about 13, 14th centuries of saints. In the wake of Muhammad, we are having people like Ibn Arabi. We are having people like Rumi. We are having people like Al-Halaj. We are having people, of course, we don't know why on purpose I chose an esoteric theme like Islamic saints and Sufi saints, because most people don't even know those names, except those of you who might be Islamic, never heard about it. I could as well have said, in the wake of Jesus and Peter and Paul, you had Francis of Assisi, you had Teresa of Avila, you had, you know, it's like you cannot just flush them down the toilet and say they were all misguided people. As some psychologists say today, they all suffered from 
temporal lobe epilepsy. That's the explanation of all the religious experiences. It's called temporal lobe epilepsy. They were all epileptics. They were talking about 100,000 epileptics who created the spiritual history of this world. About 10,000 in India, 10,000 in Europe, 10,000 in Africa, 10,000. And when you sum them up, you've got a bunch of people that you should have put them on a lonely island and set them on fire because they were all of them damaged goods. No? So, therefore, we all know that the common sense is that either there is no spiritual reality, and everybody who, like, you can do yoga, you feel the stretching of your hamstring, there will be some energy, although modern science doesn't accept that energy, both in medical science and in physics, that so-called energy is considered to be false, completely, because there is no demonstration for it. We, in yoga, we see demonstrations all the time, but in science, it's not there. I'm not even opening that door. So you like you can do yoga and something, but if yoga has some repercussion in your soul, in your mind, in your spirit, that's just a severe delusion. It's because, of course, the human body and brain is still a very imperfect machinery. And of course, if you shake the machinery too much and you do too much headstand and you do too much with the anabandas and you do too much this, uh, you might have some temporal lobe epileptic seizure and then you will think you saw Jesus or you saw the archangel Michael or whatever. You will think you saw Kali or something. And then all that is basically just nonsense. It's just that your computer is sometimes taken to the limit and then it starts having glitches and giving weird results. So what you need to do when you have weird results is just push the reset button and kind of go to sleep, wake up in the morning and forget you had any crazy experience because there is nothing out there. That's one of the possibilities. That's the opinion of Karl Marx and others like him. That means the camp of the materialistic, atheistic people. There is nothing spiritual, and every spiritual thing that you have is just a big, big delusion. We, I remember one of our yoga teachers, one of our graduates of the TTC many years ago, about 10 years ago. This was an extreme person who was a very fiery, a triple fire sign astrologically, for those of you who understand what triple fire would mean, like a real, real fireball of a woman. She was uh, dancing, stripping in nightclubs in America, like she had a very, very extreme job and way of making money. Not everybody is capable to go and dance for three years every night in a nightclub. And when uh, she finished with the TTC, her boyfriend suggested to her that she should participate to the world championships in poker. So like she jumped from pole dancing to world poker. No, like this was a very extreme person with a very extreme temperament, which some of you might be very unusual temperaments. Let's not use the word extreme. And this girl was always suspecting herself that she was not quite home, that she had a screw loose, a loose screw in her head. And she goes to a psychiatrist in California. And the psychiatrist asks her a few questions and then he says, do you 
feel that you have are surrounded by an energy field? Yes, she says, everybody is surrounded by an energy field. Ah, he says, it's very clear, you are schizophrenic. No, this is main trend psychology and psychiatry. It means that we in Agama, we should be shut down quickly, quickly, because we produce at least 50 to 100 schizophrenics every month. We are one of the major sources of mental misfits in this world, because we make people who can feel this field of energy around them. And if this is a symptom of schizophrenia, then it means I'm the chief schizophrenic, and all of you are walking in my footsteps, and we are, it's contagious somehow, we don't know. We found a way of producing it, actually, which is medically impossible, but hey, now maybe there is something which we didn't know. So what I'm trying to say is, surely, we cannot bring a demonstration to something of the spiritual existence. Remember that people like Buddha and Jesus and people like Krishna and prophets, Jewish prophets or Islamic prophets, they have been there and 30% of the world population is atheistic and almost always has been. Like there's been, there was a lot of atheism at the time of ancient Greece or in India, in ancient India. Atheism, materialism is not a new trend in the world. It's simply the fact that for some people that seems to be the more credible hypothesis. Nah, nah, it's just temporal lobe epilepsy. You didn't see Jesus on the road to Damascus or something. It's just an epileptic seizure and that's all there is to it. And thus, I, I never, when I speak about spiritual issues, I never even make the attempt to try to convince somebody who is an atheist or proclaims themselves agnostic or something, to convince themselves of the existence of the spiritual world. All my gurus taught me that when your time is coming, you will see it. Your heart will open, your intuition will open, something will open, something will awaken in your spirit, and then you won't need any explanation or sketch or diagram for it, because it's a purely internal thing. The capacity to open up or not to open up to some of these spiritual realities is a matter of grace. I've seen this with so many friends and other yogis on the path. Like I have known people who believed in paranormal powers, like they believed in the fact that somebody can heal you with the hands or, you know. They believed in everything paranormal. They believed in astral projection, like people can go out of the body and sail in the astral body and come back and so on. They believed in uh, magic. They believed in reincarnation, that your spirit is coming back in a new body every 400 years or something like this. They believed in everything, a little bit like in the... Lord of the Rings, there's a lot of magic there and a lot of clairvoyance and paranormal things. But for example, in the Lord of the Rings, you'll never find the word God. It's funny. There is reincarnation, there is clairvoyance, there is astral projection, but the pyramid has no top. It's a decapitated pyramid. Like all this paranormal world happens in the absence of higher spirits and higher spirits, and super higher spirits, and one governing 
central presence, consciousness. Thus, it is possible to have a blindness about these things even when you believe in the world of the paranormal. The fact that you are a Lord of the Ring sympathizer doesn't make you a believer in a cosmic consciousness, that you feel it. I have known such yogis who, after two years of yoga, suddenly they popped open or something by grace. When they looked back at it, they said, I don't know how it happened. I just did yoga. I did yoga. I was open. I was experimenting. I was looking at my chakras, at my body, at my mind, at my emotions, at my feelings. Suddenly, something clicked. So, that's why I'm not even trying to impress on this. I respect very much the fact that some of you may be like a green apple, not in the meaning a ripe green apple, but a green apple like an unripe apple. And two months from now, you'll be shining and ripe, but your time is not today. Your time is in two months from now, or in two years from now, or in two lifetimes from now. Therefore, that is acceptable. Nobody can change that. So many prophets and mystics and poets and seers have lived on the face of this earth. Some of them produced even paranormal strange phenomena in their lives. And yet some people are incapable to see further than a certain level. That's a matter of grace, as I say. And thus, I'm not fighting that. I am always accepting that according to some people's view, there is a chance that all this spiritual story is just a story. And I, people like me are either liars and crooks that are, sell, that are selling dreams, like we know that some of you are very credulous and then you are going to give us money for all those naive beliefs that you have. Or some of us are a bit more crazy than you are, like we are a few steps ahead in the madness from you and we sincerely believe that we are teaching something spiritual, but since something spiritual might not exist, then we are deluded and we are talking to other deluded people. So, this I'm not trying to correct this view. Because, again, I'm saying my experience shows that these things cannot be demonstrated through logics. You can show to people even paranormal phenomena. There were people in the school who tried all sorts of energy experiment, and they worked fantastically well. But it doesn't demonstrate anything beyond a certain point. Even when Jesus was performing his major miracles, like it's seldom to hear in the spiritual history of the world, somebody that has done things more shocking than Jesus. Occasionally in the Himalayan stories, in the Tibetan lore, when you read about the 84 Mahasiddhas or something, there are some wild, wild stories there as well. Again, less authentified than the Christian history. And uh, therefore, even when Jesus performed his major feats, some people disbelieved. Remember that apparently when Jesus was crucified, Pontius Pilate, because he felt split about it, 
and he simply said, I'm washing my hands, is the famous expression. That's the famous expression, I'm washing my hands. Like he simply said, let the Jews in the market, in the marketplace, let them decide, you know. We have two guys, let them decide who will be crucified and who not. And guess what? 51% of the people voted against Jesus. After Jesus healed lepers and blind and raised people off the stretchers and even raised three, four people out of their graves, walked on water, stopped storms, you know, like, okay, not everybody was witness to all of those, but it was happening in that environment. Jesus did that for three years and then 51% of the people say, no, give us Barabbas, this guy can go and get crucified, we don't care about him, he's a false prophet. Jesus did a lot of things and some people said he's working with the devil. This is the work of the devil. Like there is something, but it's not God. It's the devil. And therefore, if Jesus couldn't demonstrate to those who didn't want to see the demonstration, then what hope can I have? No. Therefore, we have to live at a certain level of modesty and humbleness in spirituality because we know that spirituality in the advanced levels is for the people who feel that they are prepared for it. It's true that for some people, they are curious. They are motivated and curious. And they say, you know, I'm very attracted. This uh, Swami and these other teachers, I feel I want to kick them in the ass or I want to kiss them. I don't know exactly because part of it is so exciting and so magic and part of it is stepping on my toes so badly, and so then I don't really know. So I'm curious, I'm going to hang around for a while to see what's happening. At least that is a sort of a correct attitude of a person who is an experimentator and says, I'm going to experiment. They say that if you do yoga for six months, for one year, for some correctly, accurately, authentic yoga, not just some stretching or gymnastics, if you do yoga, it's going to open, as that fellow very well said, the doors of perception. That we perceive the world through very narrow doors, and some people open those doors, and they can see more, they can hear more, they can feel more, they can expand those doors of perception. And uh, in this way, the point is very simple. If there is no spiritual reality and I'm just a dreamer or worse than that, then whatever we talk about what Jesus discovered or what Buddha discovered or what uh, Rumi discovered, Hey, they are all of them just epileptics, you know, that's all there is to it. Nobody discovered anything, just live your life, your heart is pumping blood, one day it will stop pumping blood, and that's the end of everything, and things are as simple as that. You haven't existed a hundred years before today, and you won't exist a hundred years from now. Enjoy it while it lasts, and that's all there is to it. If there is a spiritual reality... And of course, many of you are already open to a sort of spiritual reality, to different degrees, nothing is black and white entirely, then automatically that spiritual reality must respond to this word, reality. It's a reality. And if it's a reality, that reality corresponds to the concept of truth. 
Like in the words of Jesus who says, Know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Like what truth? Buddha calls it reality. He says simply, understand the reality with a capital R. Not a reality which is masked by Maya. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. This is the reality in which most people live. It's a reality which is masked by their preferences, by their emotions, by the samskaras from previous lives, by the brainwashing from society, school, education and other things. And therefore, the accusation is of course that people say, hey, I'm real, but they are not. Great yogis like Ramana Maharishi made a whole fuss, as some of you recently have discovered in the Hridaya retreat, because many Ramana Maharishi made a big breakthrough by simply pointing at this. Even when a person asks, who am I? Or if you ask somebody, who are you? Nobody can give one decent answer. Every crazy answer which is given about who am I is false and skewed to a large extent. And Ramana Maharishi went to a large, to, to, to a great length to demonstrate exactly this. So that people live, that's the one of the tenets of the Indian ancient philosophy, that people live in illusion. They think a lot of things about themselves and the world around them, but it's a total illusion. Buddhists approach this in another shocking way. They say, if you have lived a thousand lives and you have created a lot of karma with people with whom you loved, you quarreled, you helped, you kicked them in the ass, like you have had hundreds of actions with hundreds of people in a lifetime and you've got a thousand lifetimes before you. So you've interacted maybe with a hundred thousand people. And sometimes karma is making that those people meet again. Because if I broke your leg in the previous life, now you have to come to break my leg in this one. So karma will make that will be incarnated in the same country at the same time so that we can interact. Because otherwise there is no way you can get back to me and sort out the karmic imbalance. And therefore, you've been with so many people so many times that the Buddhist masters say everybody in your circle of friends and relatives is somebody who in the previous life or ten lives ago was your husband, your wife, your mother, your father, this and that. Buddha himself says a man is born out of a vagina. It is because out of the same vagina he extracted pleasure in the previous life. Which means the woman who is now your mother could have been your girlfriend or wife in the previous life. That's akin to madness. No? None of you wants to think about this. You know, it's like it's a very uncomfortable thought that everybody that you know and now might be friendly or not so friendly to you was mother, father, lover, brother, friend, and so on. It's like, then who's who? That's why Buddha and the Tibetan Buddhist master say, therefore, you have to compassionately and kindly love everybody. Because you can be in a negative phase with somebody, but that somebody 15 lifetimes ago was your brother or your lover or something, and then you have gone very cats and dogs with each other. So it's like the waves of karma which go now plus, now minus, now plus, now minus. Therefore, 
what I'm trying to say here is that this spiritual reality, if it exists at all, and the world is not just substance, as the materialists think, then automatically this spiritual reality has to have a sort of a solidity. Like the laws of gravitation on the planet Earth, they observe certain measurable things. That's why you can fly with airplanes. Because engineers and scientists have calculated the laws of aerodynamics and gravitation and this, and they have realized how to make a metallic object float in the air. And you came with a floating object like that when you landed in Thailand. And thus, therefore, there, is, there are always laws of nature. And the spirituality has got its own laws of nature. And these laws of nature means that the truth is one. You cannot say that, uh, oh, some people survive when they die, and some people don't survive when they die. Why? How are they different from each other, so that one falls in a category, and the other one falls in the other category? Mysticism and spirituality is also a science. It's spiritual science. It's metaphysics. And that's why in the moment when a person like Jesus or somebody, one of the great ones, says something, either they know what they are talking about and they refer to that truth or they are completely far out. They are completely out there and they lost it and they are in the middle of some epileptic seizure and they don't know what they are talking about. Thus, in yoga, the yogis have recognized always the great messages. For example, many yogis considered Buddha a great yogi. Buddha does not consider himself a yogi. Buddha does not speak about yoga. And yet Swami Vivekananda, the great Vivekananda of India, he considers Buddha a great yogi. So does Swami Shivananda. So does Yogananda Paramahamsa or Sri Aurobindo. Therefore, unanimously, like there is, not, there is not a voice in the great yogis of the 19th and 20th century who say, oh, 80% of my contemporaries got it really wrong because everybody likes Buddha and thinks he's a yogi, but I think he is a total loser and that he missed the target. No, there is not one dissentive voice in yoga which says, no, 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 actually it's not so. And thus, yes, we can see that Buddha sits in a position which looks like the cross-legged meditating position of the yogis. We can see that in Tibetan Buddhism, Buddha is sometimes performing mudras or gestures which are mudras, technical elements from yoga, because it makes a difference if you connect your thumb with the fourth finger or if you connect your thumb with the third finger, right? It's not just, it's a, let me just look interesting by doing something. There's a meaning to these things. There's an effect to these things. And thus, in this science of the mystical things, a person like Buddha would be considered a yogi. A person like Krishna, we don't identify. Nobody tells us that Krishna was doing Garudasana or that Krishna was doing Pranayama. 
And yet Krishna, the main character in the Bhagavad Gita, which Mahatma Gandhi called the Bible of the Hindus, Krishna teaches about yoga and the people who love Krishna in India, they consider him a sort of a perfect yogi, a model for all the yogis. Like if you want to be a yogi, you should try to be like Krishna because Krishna is like the zenith of spirituality. Krishna is the guiding star of spirituality. So he's technically not a yogi, but considered a yogi. Buddha, technically not a yogi, considered a yogi. In a similar way, Jesus, even more far away, of course, you can. there are theories that Jesus perhaps spent a good number of years of his life in India. It's not ultimately demonstrated scientifically. Not ultimately. So, we can't have a positive you know, Harvard Medical School type of demonstration about Jesus having been to India. And yet, most of the yogis of India, starting with Ramakrishna and with Shivananda and Yogananda and the likes of them, they consider Jesus a perfect yogi. And thus, this is one of the beautiful things about the openness, the open-mindedness of yoga. Because... When you have this open mind, then you manage to connect with the spiritual message. Yoga is about yoga, and you may easily forget what it is all about. When the first man wrote a PhD on yoga, that was in 1932, published in 1933, Professor Mircea Eliade, then in Paris, he published the first PhD ever on yoga, ever since there have been many, many, And this first PhD is emblematic until today. It's still being read and it's a textbook for some yoga schools. Because, and the title of it is brilliant. It's real academic. You know, it's like boiling yoga down to two words. What would you write on the cover of a book of yoga? Yoga, health and fitness. No. Your Mircea Eliade texts his book on yoga. Yoga, immortality and freedom. Those are huge words, huge words, immortality. So what you are doing here, in 1933, a Western academic has called it yoga, immortality and freedom. It's something about acquiring immortality. It's like when you see all the monkey yoga which is being done in this world, you hardly can believe that there is something about immortality in it. And yet... At the level of the essence, when you boil it down to the essence, you don't say yoga, stretching and flexibility. You say yoga, immortality and freedom. And that freedom is not just some libertinism of a social nature. It's freedom in its most metaphysical and philosophical meaning of that word because it means freedom from karma, freedom from samsara, freedom from prakriti, and manifestation and therefore it means freedom at its highest level. In 1980s when Georg Feuerstein, another famous academic, 30-50 years later again wrote some famous PhD on yoga, he again found a very good title. Perhaps not as brilliant as the first one but still very good because Georg Feuerstein when he wrote it he called it yoga 
the technology of ecstasy. You are here to save money on your MDMA. You don't need to take the pills. You just stand on your head and the same thing will happen, which means ecstasy. Yoga, according to Georg Feuerstein, who is a very solid authority, now he passed away a few years ago, according to Georg Feuerstein, yoga is not flexibility and well-being. Oh yeah, I am okay, you are okay, you know, that kind of philosophy. Yoga, at least you can call it the technology of ecstasy. It's learning what buttons to press on you so that you can go ecstatic. That's pretty good. It might be sounding scary, you know, it's like, oh, it sounds like a drug. No, that's why I say, maybe it's temporal lobe epilepsy and we're all, we're all crazy. No, we just discovered the buttons to press and we feel so very damn good. But there is nothing. Maybe, I give you that. It is possible. I will agree that your doubts cannot be solved in one go like this. Thus, what I'm trying to say here is, first of all, I'm coming to, commenting to you, teachings by Jesus, deeds by Jesus and others like them, simply because yoga has this extraordinary openness of spirit that it wants to analyze, it wants to experience, and it recognizes immediately the elements of spirit. The yogis of India, they didn't need to be influenced. Like Ramakrishna was one of the most puritanic yogis that existed in the history of modern India. And Ramakrishna had visions of at least 10 different spiritual paths. Like he had visions of Krishna and of Kali and of a lot of things. Mystical goals in different spiritual paths, most of them oriental. And Ramakrishna, who never converted to Christianity, on the contrary, he was a staunch adept of the revival of Hinduism in modern times, in 19th century, Ramakrishna said like a child with candor, he said, out of all the divine visions that I had in my life, the vision of Jesus was the highest. When you get such a witness coming from one like Ramakrishna, then it means something. It means something. And when you get it coming from ten big yogis who have had quite amazing lives and accomplishments, when Shivananda says so, when Yogananda says so, and Aurobindo, and even Mahatma Gandhi, who was more of a karma yogi than a mystical yogi, but still he went deep into his own exploration, then automatically this brings us at least to this common ground that if spirituality is real, then it must be true. There must be a truth of it. And people are revolting because they say, how can it be that Jesus presented the ultimate reality as something which he called Abba, a father, daddy, assumedly some old man with a white beard living in the skies, and Buddha doesn't give a rat's ass about that image of an old man, of a sort of a father figure, 
And Buddha says it doesn't even matter what the nature of that creativity is, because that's not what matters for you in your lives. Please remember, unfortunately, the atheistic spirit always wants to speculate the dissensions between religions. It's like when two spiritual people fight with each other, the demons are dancing with joy because it's the Machiavellic principle of divide et impera. Divide and rule. If the good people are wasting time and energy fighting with each other, only the evil is happy about that. That's why generally the Tibetans who were at the borderline of so many spiritual influences, they said one of the biggest crimes which there is, is to determine spiritual schools or lineages to go fight with each other. That's like shedding the blood of Buddha. It's like they, cons- they considered it to be a serious spiritual crime because spirituality is one and the presentation of it is very, very different. People trying to speculate this and to put doubts in you because, as you'll discover, one like Jesus would teach you this, that you, guys and ladies here, you are in the crossfire, you don't know, but there is a battle being waged right now for your soul. The good guys and the bad guys are this minute fighting for your soul. Your soul is being played on the roulette somewhere, somehow. And therefore, we'll, we'll get to that if we'll get to some teachings of Jesus about that tonight or some other of the coming satsangs. Therefore, people who are trying to influence this on the side of skepticism, they will tell you funny things. Like, for example, I heard many people commenting on things on Buddhism. They said, I, don't sp- I like Buddhism because Buddhism is not talking about God and you don't have to believe in any God. And Buddha said that there is no God. Buddha never said it. I'm challenging you to show me an academic translation of the words of Buddha, like the Dhammapada and the elegant discourses and other things which Buddha wrote, all the Pali sutras which exist, and to show one academical, like correctly translated sentence where Buddha says, I truly, truly, truly tell you guys, there is no divine spirit. There isn't such a paragraph because Buddha never said that. Buddha said something completely different. Buddha said, if this world has been created by Lord Ishvara, by God, or not, is of no relevance for you in your lives. Because when you will die, it will not matter if you believed in Ishvara or not. It will matter what your karma is when you died. If you believed in Ishvara, and you slaughtered, 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 slain, 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 then, so what if you believed in Lord Dishvara? Your belief cannot compensate the fact that you did acts of atrocity or acts of pain and suffering. What matters when you die is about the outcome of your death. Like, where does your soul go when you die? And what's happening with it? doesn't depend if you believed in Ishvara or in Jesus. 
That's a false statement. Buddha is crystal clear about it. It says it depends on your karma. So if you say, I don't believe in God, but you are doing compassionate, kind things, you are way, way better off than somebody who says, I believe in God, and is behaving like an asshole and like a bastard. The action matters because it's the action which produces karma, not just an empty statement where you say, I'm twice born and I'm initiated. You are, but if you are acting terribly, the results are horrible. Thus, Buddha actually did not say that you should not believe in God. He simply said, it's way, 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 way less important than the way you live your daily life. That's why you should focus on that. So actually, Buddha didn't say, actually, that part doesn't exist. Never. There is no statement where Buddha says it doesn't exist. Try to realize, you look in Buddhism, and in Buddhism there are arhats, great saints, bodhisattvas, Buddhas, and you pray to them, not to mention that there are dhyani Buddhas, Buddhas which are produced of meditation, like Buddha Amitabha, or uh, Kuan Yin, Tara, the, the Dolma of the Tibetans, and you worship them. You worship Avalokiteshvara and you worship even some terrible looking Buddhas in Tibet like Hayagriva and uh, you know the Dharmapalas, Mahakala and Lamo and a few other horrible looking creatures you know which look rather more demonic than rather actually holy, definitely scary. They are supposed to represent things which are immortal, divine, everlasting. You will die a thousand times over and Mahakala will still be there. The same. You change like a river that flows. Mahakala is a permanent reality. No, so it's like, how can we speak about things which are way above the human condition? And how far does that go? Doesn't the pyramid always have a top? What is the top of the pyramid? Yes, Buddhism simply says you can't say anything about that top because that top is even beyond duality. It's not even two. It's not even yin and yang. It's not even spirit and matter. And therefore that top, because you can't say anything about it, we call it emptiness or void. In the meaning that it is void of samskaras. It is void of mental vrittis. It is void of thoughts. It is void of anything which you could say about it. Like about that thing on top, you cannot even say it's pleasant. You cannot even say it's good. No, because that is a polarity. If you are looking for what is good, you don't understand the rest. Kakhlil Gibran brings the same issue talking about love. When he, of course, mentions that love is the divine nature. And he says love has laughter. And also a lot of tears. <coughs> like you see often in the tragic Bollywood movies, especially the older, 50 years ago, the movies of India, produced in the 1960s and 70s, a lot of them are full of tears. Almost most of them are tragic in the outcome. And it's like the teachings of Kahlil Gibran. And Kahlil Gibran says, if you want love and want only laughter then you will live only half of the life. You are not ready to go to the bottom. 
because you have to see the tears. You have to embrace the tears. That's why you cannot say that God is only laughter. I'm going to paradise and I'm going to be happy forever. Happy, but that happiness doesn't mean that there are no tears. People superficially think that because of a certain levity, spirituality and happiness is just laughter and that's it. That's not true. That's not the definition of happiness. That's not the definition of bliss. That's not the definition of accomplishment. And that's why what I'm trying to say here in all these, in all these ways is that since a spiritual science is unitary, then it must be that somehow that emptiness or void mentioned by Buddha has a little bit of the same quality with that cosmic father mentioned by Jesus. Because it cannot be that both those people climbed to the top of reality and one of them discovered Ishvara or Jehovah to stay to the Hebrew environment and the other one discovered Shunya, Shunyata, the void, the emptiness. Either one of them didn't go all the way to the top and thought so, which is very difficult to presume. It's a very severe accusation to say, if Jesus would have prayed a little bit more to Jehovah, he might have discovered that Jehovah was emptiness, actually. It's, it's very presumptuous to, pre, to imply that Jesus didn't actually quite see everything, and you know better. Because you read a book yesterday and uh, you got some ideas where you know better than Jesus. It's also very presumptuous to to think that Buddha should have meditated on his crown chakra a little bit more. And then he would have discovered Jehovah hiding behind the scenes, hiding behind the void. So if we admit that these people have reached to the top, then automatically we simply realize That the human mind, depending on the language which you speak from your childhood, depending on the traditions in your country, philosophy under which you grew up and other things, will, and maybe even depending on your astrological sign or a hundred other such things, will go into that state of the higher consciousness, perhaps let's call it highest consciousness, and when you come back, what name you put on it, what words and images you use to describe it to the others who haven't been there, may be as different as Buddha and Jesus. Like Buddha and Jesus, ultimately, they are presumed to talk about the same thing. They are supposed to speak about the same thing. But oh my, how different does it come out when you hear it from Buddha And when you hear it from Jesus. That's the concern of the yogis. To put everything on an experimental basis. That's why Ramakrishna. For those of you who know a bit about the personality of Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna was a brilliant example of this. Because every time when somebody spoke down to Ramakrishna. And said, ah yeah, you are supposed to be some great shot here in your Bengal uh, area and so on. But you never heard about Jesus. You know, it's like, for us, you are not even a beginner. You know, children in my community know more than you do. You know, the fact that you, Ramakrishna, don't even know who Jesus was and what he did. It's like you are trash. 
Ramakrishna would say, then teach me. He was like a child. No, like he didn't take it personally. He said, is there something so much higher than everything which I have done until now? Teach me. Of course I want to learn about it. You know, it's like I don't want to die in this ignorance or in this state of inferiority. Teach me. And he started practicing it like crazy. Like crazy. Like when he verified the, pro, the process described by the Prophet Muhammad, Ramakrishna, who was a staunch Hindu, for three weeks or something like this, he became a Muslim. He went to the mosque every day. He didn't step in the Hindu temples because the Muslims in India consider that the Hindus are pagans and heathens and that Hindu religion is shit. And he, compl- like he conformed 101%. He went fanatically on it. And usually in every single such experiment which Ramakrishna did, and he tried about 20 different paths, Ramakrishna in three days, three days, he reached Samadhi. He reached the state of Samadhi. And therefore, then he was serene and he said, I'm very happy, I'm blissed out to tell you that the spiritual path which you described to me, to the person who taught him, you know, the spiritual path which you described to me leads to the same God which I had discovered already before. This is the yogic spirit of experimenting being having an open spirit and more the most precious thing is the practice the direct experience which one has not the philosophy about it in this context in agama it often happens that we give examples parables quotes from the great sages from what buddha said from what krishna said from what Jesus said, and in this context, about 10 years ago, I gave a series of lectures in which I simply went through the first two Gospels from the Bible. The Gospels are the parts in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, which describe the actual actions of Jesus by four different authors. Four different authors talk about what Jesus did. So they are like short stories about Jesus. And then the same story gets told again by another one and by another one. And when you read all the four versions of it, you get to some sort of a complete vision about who this guy Jesus was and what he did and what he said. And the message of Jesus is considered to be very important. The yogis having no preference, like the yogis, no, there have been yogis who have been fond of Zen, of Buddhist Zen, re-imported from China and Japan and brought back to the Indian spirit. Like today, after for 2,000 years, almost nobody practiced Buddhist meditation in India. Today, the Vipassana and other streams of meditation are again being practiced in India, especially in the last 50 years. And so on, they came back. And thus, um, the message left by Jesus is given a top priority by the yogis. Um, Again, I'm saying, there's no reason for which a super yogi like Ramakrishna, 
who Romain Rolland, the French writer who is the first who wrote his biography, he called him the prince of the yogis. Like he, he was considered outstanding in so many ways. And Ramakrishna says that the biggest divine vision that he had as a Hindu was that one of Jesus. And thus, uh, I, I spoke many times about these things. When I started this cycle of lectures about 10 years ago, I had a sort of a first chapter of it, of a first introduction, which was called Jesus in the Eyes of Yoga. I think that was the title which was given. And as far as I understand, that lecture might be uploaded, available in either audio or video format. Some people have typed it along the years, and it must exist in some text format somewhere. So, for this reason, I'm not going to talk to you right now at this point of my uh, discourse tonight. I'm not going to talk to you about Jesus in the eyes of yoga. Why do the yogis consider that Jesus is so great? There are multiple reasons and we have long lists of those. I'm, I'm going to remind a few ideas very, very briefly uh, because I don't want to repeat a discourse which is classic by now, and uh, many of you may have heard it already. But if you did not hear it, it would be a good idea that in this week or whenever you have a bit of time soon, that you download it, that you get it, that you find out where it is. Again, I don't know where they are, if it is on the site of Agama or wherever it is, and so on. And find it out, ask, uh, send an email and ask, and then uh, listen to it. Because it will uh, help you a lot in understanding what I'm trying to present here. Because it simply gives you this argument that the science of yoga being non-sectarian and open to all the spiritual influences when they are bona fide, when they are common sense, Jesus holds a a place of pride. The teachings of Jesus are considered very spectacular in many, many ways. Also from the standpoint of I as a teacher speaking in the school, many people are giving feedback about this and um, one thing we can see for sure. First, the, the first thing which is outstanding there. When you listen to the message of Jesus, And when you blend yoga with Jesus, it's like dynamite. It like gives a very big aspiration. The way Jesus has presented the spiritual truth, the way he saw it and the way he understood it and the way he gave it to the world. Together with the practice of yoga, with the technicality and accuracy of yoga, creates a mixture which is one of the strongest. Like everybody who is in yoga and has gone through this already knows that Jesus gives aspiration. Most of you know, if you, those of you who are now in the first level and have never done the first level before, maybe you don't know fully what this story with the aspiration is. And in the fourth week of the first level, you will have that smashing lecture about Ishvara Pranidhana, and then you are going to wake up to another dimension of your being, 
and understand something very precious. But until then, and the others, 90% of you in this room don't need that because you've already listened to that lecture, and you know that this factor called aspiration, aspiration in a nutshell, it means that you have a longing for realizing the truth. Like some people are indifferent. And there would be people in this room that if I would be speaking concretely and openly about the spiritual things until 12 o'clock tonight, they wouldn't move a finger. They would be riveted to their mat and they would say, wow, you know, Swami Vivekananda is like pouring a new life in my veins. You know, It's like if I'm dying of, of starvation and of tiredness and I'm not going out of this hall before he does. Some of you will say it's 10.30. I have something important to do tomorrow morning. Like for some people, the spiritual message doesn't matter as much as for other people. That's simply a datum. It's a fact. It doesn't contain any moral judgment to it. And I'm not saying what is better or not. Because as I told you from the very beginning, I'm ready to accept that spirituality might be some form of mental disease. So maybe if you are so interested in what I have to say, maybe it's because you are very sick and you should seek help, you know. So it's like it doesn't, I'm not giving to it any moral connotation or value. I'm just giving it as a fact that people in spirituality do what they do because they awaken in themselves what we call aspiration. Like they are really, really burning. They are really, really longing. They really, and then no price is too big for it. That's why in spirituality, sometimes you hear about the great extremes, you know. Why did Milarepa meditate 12 hours per day for 30 years? Like, that was a major, major crazy person. But the question is still, why did he think it was worth it? What made it worth it for Milarepa? And then many people say, why don't I feel the same? I wish I would feel like Milarepa, because then I would be very motivated for what I do. So, Jesus, through experience, we know this, the way in which Jesus has introduced the spiritual reality is very motivating. Buddha introduces the spiritual reality like you are tired because you are in samsara and you are running like a squirrel in a cage, like a hamster in a cage, and you've had 5,000 lifetimes and you are really fed up. It's Groundhog Day. You keep repeating the same human existence ad infinitum, boringly and desperatingly. And if you don't do anything, you are going to have another 5,000 lifetimes where you'll do the same shit which everybody does and which you have done. And we know it's like it's a never-ending story. And basically, Buddha presents aspiration more like a desperation. You know, like I'm so fed up with the planet Earth. I'm so fed up with humanity. I'm so fed up with the human condition. And I'm so fed up with this Groundhog Day that the only thing which I want is to get out, for God's sake. Can somebody show me the exit door? Somebody show me how to escape from this game because it's a desperating game. Some people will understand that even in this hall, 
Now, there will be 10 people who can understand that. Why? Because you have the psychological structure of the Buddha and probably because you've already lived many, many lifetimes as a human being and you can resonate with what Buddha says. And then something in you is slightly self-destructive, suicidal, disappointed, and you just want to get out. You just want to get out. In Romania, we have a major poet who is the national poet of Romania, 19th century poet, and he presents in one of his poems a cosmic character who is a sort of a deity who runs at the feet of God and he says, just give me rest. Like, even being a god, a deity, is so tiresome. Because it's still samsara. It's a high level of samsara, but it's still samsara. And just spinning around and around and around and around, even as a god, even as a deity, is that boring eventually. And it's desperating. Like the whole world is a carousel. It's a circus. It's a merry-go-round. You know, and it's, you never get anywhere. And nothing has any finality ever. No, galaxies are born and disappear. Suns are coming up and exploding as supernovas. You know, nothing goes anywhere. And it's just spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning. This is a temperament a little bit like Buddha's. Like all I want is a rest, repose. That's why when people die, sometimes we say rest in peace. Why not sing in peace? Why not love in peace? Why not enjoy in peace? Rest in peace. Rest in peace is by the people who are desperate by too much activity and fed up, simply tired with the whole thing. That's the view of Buddha and that's the view of Shankaracharya, the Vedantic view. And other people had this view, escapistic, suicidal. It's like spiritual practices that I go and suddenly my mind stops. And then, hasta la vista. See you in the next cosmic cycle or something. You know, it's like I'm out of here and I've been longing for this for 10,000 lifetimes. Thank you. It's like the wonderful thing. Uh, it's, it's made wonderfully similar in the Truman Show, where he a whole lifetime he is in the Truman Show, and then he all he wants is to get out of there. He has the intuitive feeling that he is trapped. And in the end, he says the famous sentence, and if I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. That's Nirvana. Nirvana in Pali, in Sanskrit actually, because it's Nibbana in Pali, it means extinction. Like when you blow off a candle, that's extinction. So you live and live and you think you are a prince in a castle, like Buddha was, and then you finished it. And what did you get? Rest. Repose. The wheel has stopped for you. But that's not the way Jesus presents spirituality. So that's why some people will listen to Buddha. And if they are also a bit suicidal. I'm exaggerating on purpose to make it sound a bit ridiculous. So if they are a bit suicidal, they will say, yeah. Yeah, just like that guy said. That's me, you know. That's what I feel. 
Well, the way of speaking of Jesus is the one which gets most souls. If you speak to a hundred people, ten will like Buddha, ten will like Shankaracharya, and eighty would like Jesus. I'm just simplifying. There are other messengers of the divine. I'm not now making an actual survey. I'm simply trying to tell you symbolically that we know this in yoga for a fact. When you hear the spiritual reality presented by Jesus, many, many people, maybe not 100 out of 100, but 50 out of 100, maybe 60 out of 100 or more, they start getting goosebumps. They start crying. They start shuddering and they are touched. Because the way Jesus has presented the message is extremely powerful and it comes from an inspiration, from a presence, from an actualization of this divine reality which is unsurpassed. There are other traditions where, which are close. For example, in India, before they knew about this avatar which, was, which lived in Palestine 2,000 years ago and which the Westerners in English called Jesus, they had other avatars. India acknowledges the fact that there are other divine presences in the history of the earth. For example, the legendary Krishna, who didn't live 2,000 years ago, Krishna is supposed to have lived somewhere around four, four and a half thousand years ago. And Krishna is presented in the Mahabharata and in the Bhagavad Gita, which is part of the Mahabharata, is presented also as a divine presence, as God or some aspect of God incarnated in a human body. And outside he looks like you and me and he has a urinary bladder and every two hours he needs to go to the toilet or in a bush and just pee, because he is just a human being, physically speaking, has got a brain, two arms, needs to eat, needs to drink water, or else he dies after a while and so on. And at the same time, this physical body is hiding a spiritual presence, which we don't see. We look at people and how do we know what's the spiritual presence of this or that person? Very few people can notice that. And thus, in Krishna, that spiritual presence is a divine spiritual presence. When you read some of the words of Krishna, where Krishna reveals himself, accepts to talk about himself, to his friend and disciple Arjuna, where he says, I am the, the creator and destroyer of the worlds. I am this and that. It's a quote which David Oppenheimer liked to quote, when he created the atomic bomb out of megalomania, he imagined that now he's like Krishna because now they have the atomic weapons. And if you have atomic weapons, you can create and destroy worlds. Of course, that's very, very naive and silly. But uh, it, the quote is there. And whoever reads that quote, I can bring it for comparison in one of the coming satsangs. When you read that quote, you also get goosebumps. Like when Krishna confidently talks about himself and he says, I'm not who you think I am. You see me as a human being, but look who I really am. Then it is uh, thrilling. 
Well, with Jesus, it almost goes to the next step. Like there's one notch on top of that. Because Jesus, simply from my observation as a yoga teacher, what, what my pupils do, what motivates them, what makes my pupils, you, some of you declare yourself to be my pupils, some of you don't know yet uh, what you want, but some of the pupils that I know in their practice, what makes them tomorrow practice 15 minutes more? Because ultimately I'm a pragmatical person. I'm interested in how much you stand on your head. I'm interested in how much you use those mantras that we taught to you. I'm interested in how much meditation you do. That's what matters. That's what really matters. What you do. If you do, the results will happen. Yes, physical results also for those of you who are interested in the physicalities of yoga. Oh yes, the physical things will happen. But also the internal things. The psychological, the mental, the paranormal, the spiritual. All of them will happen according to the plan, simply because yoga works. That's why people stay for years and years in yoga. Because they discover that it works. And if it worked for six months, then they know it's going to work for the next six months as well. And then they are willing. Some people get tired, bored, and they say, oh, I've been digging for six months, and it's wonderful, but right now I have no more momentum to... Okay, some people may stop in the middle of the practice, but for some people, they want to dig and dig and dig because they have this longing. This longing is amplified very much by Jesus. When you hear the words of Jesus, your soul gets like wings. It's like you feel that you can eat embers and fire. You feel like you are wild and you feel like, yes, you know, it's like that's, that's somebody who is uncompromisingly telling the truth, going to the bottom of the matter. And that's why this combination in which yogis understand the message of Jesus has been proved in the last 150 years, ever since Ramakrishna was there, has been proved to be very strong. When Yogananda Paramahamsa was the first of the major yogis of India who emigrated to America, that was his tagline. That was his sales pitch. Yogananda became famous because he gave commentaries, analogies, quotes, always with Jesus. Always with Jesus. And the Americans in the 1930s, they were very impressed and very pleased that somebody who comes and has a spiritual reputation from India is at the same time so clear about what Jesus said and that these things fit like a hand in a glove. There is no contradiction. It can seem that there is a contradiction between the void of Buddha and the father of Jesus. But there isn't. And in the same way, they can seem that there are lots of contradictions between things which Jesus says and things which we teach in yoga. But there isn't. It's only superficial. It's only you are looking at the wrapping, not at the contents. The contents is actually always the same. This was the purpose of I presenting the message of Jesus to yogis so that they can get 
a much deeper inspiration and kind of accumulate the momentum because the momentum given by Jesus is so precious, is so life-giving. He really can move your heart. He really can touch your heart. And because of that, um, I have longed for a long time also to resume a little bit the series to teach some of the teachings of Jesus because 10 years ago, eight years ago, I touched only the first two Gospels and some of the teachings given there. And now um, I am uh, at this crossroads because I wouldn't want to repeat too many of those because they have been recorded, transcribed. We are very uh, poor in working on these things, so they should have been published and made public long time ago because there is no... We're not holding them for any secrecy or something. I would love as many people to have access to them uh, as possible. But somehow uh, in Agama we are very slow because we focus on practice, we focus on this, and all these administrative things and so on, they are happening uh, very slowly. So anyway, there is such a teaching up there, and I always had the feeling of coming again, uh, resurrecting, so to speak, this restarting, re-kickstarting again these uh, teachings for giving a new wave of aspiration, for bringing a, a sort of a new time of this aspiration. So the first thing which mattered for me as a teacher was this important aspiration. Again, if you will follow this series, it will touch you. Some of the things which Jesus says are astonishing when they come together with the practice of yoga. Many people love Jesus also because he is one of the most uncompromising and politically incorrect spiritual teachers, if you can call him that, that existed. Like Jesus is taking no bullshit whatsoever. We all are trying to be more or less politically correct. And we say we live in the 21st century. You can't say that. Well, you know, you have to leave the door open and so on. Jesus is the kind who says very clearly, I came to separate the society in two. The good and the bad. The wheat and the weed. The weed not in the meaning of marijuana, but in the meaning of useless grass, which is spoiling the crops. No? And he says, because of my presence, people will have to choose who is with me and who is, Jesus says, crazy sentence. Like he says, he who is not with me is against me. No? Like Jean-Paul Sartre or whoever, Bulgakov, some of these modern existentialists and other weird French philosophies and other things which existed in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and so on. They come up with stuff like this. I remember this quote from a, a Jean-Paul Sartre uh, play, theater play, where a guy says, I'm neither with God nor with the devil. I'm with man. And that's supposed to be called humanism. If you go according to Jesus... Humanism is Satanism. Because Jesus says very clearly, if you are not with me, you are against me automatically. 
There is no midpoint. I'm not with you. I'm not with the devil. I am a humanist. There isn't. It's just an illusion created by the devil so that you don't tell to yourself that you are doing Satanism. You are actually doing it, but you are lying to yourself because it's politically correct. Jesus is not politically correct and he takes no bullshit. He simply says, if you are not with me, you are against me. See you. Sometime, somehow. You know, you don't like it. That's, it's up to you. No? So some people love this style of Jesus. That there is no compromise, you know, and many people don't even dare to ask themselves a question like, what would Jesus do? Or what would Jesus say? It's like, whoa, you know, it's like, we don't even want to ask that question. Why? Because the answer would be rough. The answer would be frightening. The answer would be terrible. And thus... Some people love that about Jesus. Because, yeah, there have been others. Like many, many of the spiritual teachers broke the rules of the day. Buddha simply said all this caste system of the Hindus is bullshit, is dead. It worked a thousand years ago, uh, ago from him. Like, well before me, Buddha said, this caste system had a meaning and there was a consecration to it. And by the power of consecration, it worked. But because your faith has decreased and the practices have gone down, it doesn't work anymore. So Buddha, 25 centuries ago, has proclaimed there are no more castes. Even today, if you take the Hindustan times, the marriage, the classifieds, there the marriages are still arranged according to castes. The marriage announcements in Hindustan times are more than 80% of them are according to the caste of the bride and of the groom. But Buddha said 25, not to mention that Mahatma Gandhi made a fuss about it. And like important people, India simply can't let go of the fucking caste system. They can't let go of it, although Buddha told them, it's, you can flush it down the toilet, it's not working. They don't. So uh, Buddha was politically incorrect, and there were people, locals who hated him, because he destroyed some of these old dreams in which people loved to live in these dreams. Of course, if you are born in a shitty low caste, then you are happy that Buddha comes and tells you that your caste is of no consequence. But if you are a Brahmin and your life is full of privileges, and then Buddha comes and says your privileges are gone, then you hate Buddha, no? Because he is cancelling all the sugar in your life. Because he tells you that your high caste is of no con- should be of no consequence from today on. And thus, uh, others have been uncompromising. But the Prophet Muhammad, who for many is controversial because Islam is today uh, much uh, booed religion because of different things which emerge from it. But the Prophet Muhammad was uncompromising and politically incorrect. The Prophet Muhammad openly said, if you live in a society where the laws of man contradict what I told you in the Quran, then feel free to break the laws of man as much as you want, because the laws of God take prevalence. That's what many Muslims do today, and the society is chasing them, Because they live according to the word of the Prophet, which said the human laws 
are of no consequence compared to the divine laws. Ah, many people will say, but how do we know that what he wrote in the Quran is divine laws and not just some bullshit coming from temporal lobe epilepsy? No, that's an eternal problem. Then the only way not believing Muhammad is to proclaim yourself an atheist and saying the guy was a raving maniac. And what he wrote is just bullshit, is of no consequence. But of course, when you look historically, you say that it's interesting that such bullshit has made such many waves in the history of this planet. So how comes then? What is happening? Jesus is also very important for a teacher from the standpoint of teaching because he uses a simplified dualistic philosophy. Those of you who are sophisticated, you know, and those of you who, are, who have been connected with Agama, you know even more that in Agama we have some tops of the teaching. They are the real esoteric parts when you get to Kashmiri Shaivism and similar teachings, which are representing the so-called non-dualistic teachings, like Advaita Vedanta is in India, the tantric tradition goes one notch further than that, although it hardly seems possible, but it is, and that is the Kashmiri Shaivism and the top teachings of that. And then many people say, oh, Agama, if you really go and distillate and if you really get to the bottom of these teachings, it's not just the Hatha Yoga and the working on Manipura Chakra and subliming some energy which you learn in the first level. That's the kindergarten. That's how everybody starts. Everybody starts in the first level and they learn those. And for many people, those things last for the next 15 years. They are very important. You know, I, I met people who after 35 years of yoga, they told me the most important yoga technique which I have learned in my life was Vamana Dauti. Like the vomit in Kriya. You drink water and you vomit for those of you who didn't do day 10 of our yoga courses. They're like, is that all you got from yoga? I have had people who have done yoga 35 years and they said if I would make a priority, most important, the thing which served me most during these 35 years is Vamana Dauti. Maybe you can say, oh, that's disappointing, you know. It's not disappointing. It's the practical conclusion of somebody who has been involved in this life with yoga. Somebody who practiced quite seriously at a period of... Somebody who is a yoga teacher. Somebody who has been in it for 35 years. And Vamana Dauti, you learn it in day 10 or 11 of our yoga courses. In the first level. So again, I don't want to demean it like it's not important. But of course, you are going deeper and deeper. And some of you might reach to the Kashmiri Shaivism. Well, Jesus is not teaching Kashmiri Shaivism, disappointingly. Because Kashmiri Shaivism, paradoxically, produces less aspiration than Jesus. Kashmiri Shaivism can produce more aesthetic rapture, more metaphysical and philosophical bliss. It's really amazing, this Kashmiri Shaivism. But it doesn't have so much the power of Jesus to electrify you, to give you goosebumps, that you listen or see something which Jesus said, and you go home and cry for two hours. It simply shatters you. Kashmiri Shaivism doesn't do that. Kashmiri Shaivism is amazing and top-notch, but it doesn't have the same power to move. Jesus is using a dualistic philosophy. 
Jesus says, who is not with me is against me. Yeah, but the Tibetans would say, let's say somebody was against Jesus because he was stupid, demonized, impure, bad resonance. He didn't like Jesus. Okay, let's say he was not one of the people who beat Jesus or who crucified him. He was just a sort of a neuter, neutral bystander who just looked at Jesus and said, nah, that guy, nah, nah, he's a hippie, fuck him. I don't know. Okay, Jesus passed by, you didn't consider him, you, you were not with him. So you are falling on the dark side. No, you are an ignorant who goes and bites the dust. Tibetan metaphysics will say even somebody like that will spend 3,000 years in hell. And then once the negative karma is over, the same spirit is coming up again, washed and cleansed, and has one more chance. And probably after 3,000 years of suffering in hell, you are a bit more wise and the second time you'll be a bit more careful because you'll realize, oops, I don't know why, but I feel I've been here before. You know, so there is something. So even Tibetans would say there is no eternal damnation. Nobody stays in hell forever because hell cannot last forever. Because if it lasts forever, it's infinite. And if it's infinite, it's God. In this universe, there is only one thing which is perfect, infinite, eternal, absolute, immutable. You can call it the void, the emptiness, or you can call it God. But there is only one thing which has that. Everything else, including your pain, your negative karma, your confusion, it's finite. It will end someday. Nothing is infinite because if it's infinite, it becomes like God. And therefore, even hell is not infinite. But Christianity is teaching a doctrine of eternal damnation. Like you have one life, and it's like Russian roulette. If you love Jesus, and you don't fuck your neighbor's wife, you are going to paradise, and that's for good. And if you did that thing with your neighbor's wife, or husband, then you are going to gnash your teeth in darkness for all eternity, and that's hell, and it's supposed to last forever. There is nothing forever. That is a simplified way of teaching for simple, illiterate people invented 18 centuries ago by the apostles and Jesus and so on for teaching, you know, the the apostles themselves. Peter and those guys, they were fishermen. 10 out of 12 apostles didn't know how to read and write. They were illiterate people. So how do you teach to illiterate people high metaphysical things? The genius of Jesus is incredible because Jesus is teaching a simplified dualistic philosophy. You are with me or if you are not with me, you go into darkness and gnash your teeth for a long, long time, whatever that means. You know, it's very simple. And because it's very simple, it touches everybody. It's motivating. Like your brain, even if you are a five-year-old child, you can understand the message. That simplicity pays. It pays through the fact that it touches the, the, the primitive structures of the human brain. It's like a lot of emotion there. It speaks directly to something which is the core of your being. And some people love Jesus for that as well. Like, yeah, yeah, let Abhinavagupta do Kashmiri Shaivas. Jesus went like a knife, like a hot knife through butter. Directly to the core of the matter. No, we could say, well, if you are not with me, you are against me. 
and then maybe in 2,000 years things will change. Jesus didn't bother to tell the final part of that sentence because it was not relevant right then. No, because many people say, I think it was Osho Rajneesh who said, because the Hindus believe in reincarnation, they have become the most spiritually lazy people on the planet Earth. Because they always say, if I don't do it in this life, I surely am going to do it in the next life. And Osho says, bullshit. You know, what if there is no next life? What if the whole thing is an illusion? Do it now, like there is no tomorrow. Do it now, like this is the only thing which you've got. Then you are motivated. So Jesus is very tricky in this way. He motivates. He's a brilliant motivator. The people who understand him, who resonate with him, they are very motivated. Also, let's not forget today, teachers, I remember some consultants who came to Agama, and they were trying to give us a knowledge of how to run Agama in the administrative way, because from the yogic way, we didn't know anything about that. And they told us, perfectionism is a mental disease. Like, there is nothing perfect. You will never find a perfect manager, a perfect business. There isn't. You have to deal with what you've got. Well, guess what? Jesus is mentally diseased big time. Because Jesus is a perfectionist. He goes for perfection. He tells to people, be perfect like your Father in heaven is. You know, it's like, who can be perfect? Everybody will fail that test. There has not been a human being. You can't say that Milarepa or Rumi or Ramakrishna were perfect. Because they were not. Nobody can be perfect if you measure it like this. And yet Jesus comes with this, like the sky is the limit. You have to go, you have to max out completely your aspiration for going to that level. So, these are, from the standpoint of teachings, these are a few reasons for which I like to keep Jesus. Many people say, but Swamiji, are you especially Christian? I don't derive anything from any Christian denomination. In the denomination where my parents were born, or some like Christian Orthodox, or others, people consider that yoga is the work of the devil. That if you do yoga, you are just a lost soul, that you lost your way, and so on. So I don't owe any allegiance to any denomination or form of Christianity. I'm not a secretly a Christian preacher who is trying to bring you to Jesus by using the decoy of yoga. I have no purpose in that. I, as a yogi, I have been an... When I was 16 years old, I was an atheist because I was involved with physics and mathematics and science, and I thought that was the thing. I lived in a communist country where the school and the society was teaching atheism, and it was through the practice of yoga that I rediscovered Jesus, and I realized what I was about to lose, what I was about to miss, just because I was having a narrow view on the things. And that's why... um, I am talking about Jesus with yoga, as well as about Buddha and about Krishna and about the other each one and Muhammad and whatever with their specificities. I'm talking about Jesus because actually Jesus is very efficient. 
Jesus in your spiritual life is going to perform some miracles for you. Your soul is going to be revived by simply listening to the message of Jesus. Not all of it, like I'm not a Christian exeget where I'm trying to make an analysis of text. I'm trying to pick up those statements, actions, which have a very great relevance or can be explained from the standpoint of yoga. Like, this is Anahata Chakra, this is Manipura Chakra, this is the correct thing, this is discrimination, this is lack of discrimination, and so on and so forth. To listen to the spiritual principles as they are set forth by one of the most important people of spirituality that lived on the face of this earth, whoever he was. It does, the theology is not important if Jesus was God or just a man of absolutely outstanding spiritual value. Fact is that he was, and then the message which he gave touched a lot of people. Try to think about what it was that the Roman Empire was coming on top of the Greek civilization. The Greek civilization had become already deeply morally depraved. I'm not talking only about the sexual deviations and this, uh, that the Greek world and the Roman world were famous, but generally, the hypocrisy, the lie, the decadence was there. Even the Jews who considered themselves chosen and holier than everybody else, even the Jewish priests who crucified Jesus, who, who asked for the crucifixion of Jesus, They were a bunch of selfish, blind people. Jesus accused them straightforward. He said, you are snakes and wolves and liars and hypocrites. And, you know, Jesus raved at them big time, straightforward. You know, no compromise, no kid gloves. No, he just went straightforward and he told them what his perception was about them. So the world was deeply down. The Jewish tradition was down. The Egyptian tradition had been, you know, the pharaohs have become monsters who enslaved tens of thousands of people to just build pyramids, you know, megalithic monuments for their own tombs or whatever reason. So the Egyptian was decadent. When Moses came, Moses came 1,500 years before Jesus. When Moses, or 1,000 years, when Moses came, he beat the shit out of the priests of the pharaoh, of the Egyptian pharaoh. They tried to cast spells, black magic, diseases, all sorts of things. They, there was a war of black magicians there. No? And so that was Egypt a thousand years before Jesus already. There was no more glory and no more light in that civilization. All the Babylonians and the others, the Persians, and the, they all were decadent. The Greeks were decadent. The Romans were decadent. There has not been one mentally healthy emperor from Caesar on, exception made of Marcus Aurelius. There are medical studies done by historians which show that Caesar was the least mentally handicapped of the Roman emperors from year zero. Because uh, Caesar was only epileptic. And epilepsy at the time of the Roman Empire was considered the form of demonic possession. But Caligula, Nero, 
Mesalina, and the likes of them, they were deeply schizophrenic. So what sort of empire you have where the emperor is a severe mental patient? Except Marcus Aurelius, who was a philosopher, a reasonable philosopher, and apparently didn't suffer from any form of mental derangement. All the others did. So the world was really down. And in that world there appears a hippie who says if somebody slaps you on one cheek, turn the other as well and forgive your enemies and live like the birds of the sky and don't weave and don't toil because God is going to give you everything. Like an extreme philosophy. And this man who preaches for three years this extreme philosophy then people die for him. Like Jesus was born in, was dead in the year 30 something, 33, or by the regular counting. Now, some people contest the dates in the life of Jesus, like the calendar was skewed. It doesn't matter, around the year 30 something. And then 200 years later, people were dying in the Colosseum for Jesus. Women saw their children thrown to the lions because they said they were Christian. Where does that momentum come from? Do you realize what we're talking about? That history shows that more than 50,000, extensively more than 50,000 people were killed publicly because they said they were Christians. And some of the deaths were really bad, like burned alive, crucified, thrown to the lion, all the martyrdom of Christianity. Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people killed just because they said, I prefer Jesus. I choose Jesus. And all it would have taken for them would have said, okay, okay, you want to throw me to the lions? You know what? Uh, I don't like Jesus. It was just, I just said it like this. Okay, I'm not with Jesus. And of course, inside, when I go at home, I say, oh, Jesus, sorry, I had to tell. But they were planning to kill me. You know, People didn't even do that. And they accepted to go to death. How much momentum can somebody put in the soul of people? Realize. That's why you will see some of the examples of this mixture of how the teaching, some of the teachings of Jesus, how they sound from the standpoint of yoga, explained through yoga, and how marvelous these things dovetail. How marvelously this thing touch our spiritual essence. Again, it would be a good idea if you would look or listen to that uh, lecture, which is called Jesus in the Eyes of Yoga. No, because uh, there I explained why so many Indian yogis loved Jesus due to this path of the heart which he brings and this uncompromising things. And they consider Jesus a model. I think Yogananda calls him the divine model. Like Yogananda basically says, if I would live a perfect life, I would love to live like Jesus. If I could live like Jesus, I, it means I have reached 100%. Okay, Yogananda didn't quite manage to be like Jesus, right? Because he didn't raise dead people from their graves. He didn't walk on water. He didn't. So Yogananda was like 50% like Jesus, or, but he aimed to it. 
That's why this syntagma is interesting that Jesus was seen by great yogis as a sort of a role model, as a sort of an ideal model. And the Hindus accepted very easily this idea because they are used to the idea of avatara. Avatara is not the science fiction movie which happened 10 years ago or 8 years ago. And it's not uh, the thing, the character which you have in a computer game. Those are names which are given exactly as on the computer screen. You have things which are called icons. And it says double click the icon. But that icon is not like the icon of Virgin Mary dressed in gold and silver. So the word is the word avatara which is used today in computer science is coming from an ancient Sanskrit word which meant a descent of God in a human form like Krishna, like Jesus. So for the Hindu yogis it was very easy to acknowledge, yes, here is an avatara, this is a divine. So for Hindus it's not uh, difficult to say that Jesus was God, was, yeah, he was, Krishna was God also, and therefore they are very happy about it. And um, um, of course Jesus cannot be blamed for all the misinterpretations, institutionalization of Christian faith and all the others. And uh, there are so many things which come from this presence of Jesus in the world. I'm not going to mention them. I have a whole list of them, but they are in that lecture. Try to find it in written or spoken format or video format and you will hear something which will give you some food for the thoughts to understand how the yogis uh, realized this greatness of Jesus even for yogis, even from the standpoint of yoga. So starting with the next uh, satsang, I'm going to read some paragraphs from the Gospel of Luke because I made some commentaries to the Gospel of Matthew and Mark uh, in those years, long years ago. And now I just want to continue with one which I did not touch. And thus I will stop on some of the words and teachings which are revealing principles because what Jesus is describing sometimes, he says, do like this, one should do like this, one should pray like this, act like this. And then he explains a little bit. Actually, what he is talking about are deep, deep principles. Because those deep principles reflect cosmic laws which are not always like the law of karma. If any one of you has studied a bit of Buddhism, a bit of spirituality, the word karma appears in Hollywood movies today. It's in the Webster Dictionary, you know, so everybody has a feeling that, oh, karma, I kind of know. I don't know if I believe in it or I stand for it, but yeah, I know what karma is supposed to mean. No? So it's like the law of karma, Everybody knows if you do something, it gets back to you sooner or later. It comes back to you. It's like a sort of a boomerang effect. Mm, I know. But there are many other principles of the metaphysical and spiritual life which are not as easily visible and they are very important. And for example, in the Psalms, I'm not going to Jesus, I'm going to King David prophet, one of the old prophets of Judaism who was a king also, David, the great David prophet and king, he wrote the Psalms. And in the Psalms, there is one of them, which is the Psalm of humbleness. If 
I remember 50, 51, 52, I don't remember the numbers. I'm not a Christian theologian and I don't care about these uh, numbers and things. And there David, in one of the verses of that psalm, says, The humble soul God shall not crush. It's a verse from a poem. It's a verse from the psalm. But it represents a cosmic principle, which is a law like the law of karma. Like David there gives you a pearl. He says, if you are arrogant and proud, God will unleash Kali to dance a jig on your head. And your life is going to be shit over shit over shit over shit and pain over pain over pain over pain. And you don't know what the fuck is happening in my life. And the thing which is happening is that you are not humble. And God wants you meek. And you refuse to understand. And then there is a way in which you will understand. The dance. The dance goes on. Until eventually you throw yourself to the ground and say, Please, please, please stop. I don't know what's happening. But please stop. David has witnessed that pain. And he knows. And he says, The soul that is humble... God shall not persecute. Like if you say, it feels like I'm being persecuted. It tells you a simple thing. You're not humble enough. Because when you are humble, God doesn't kick a lying person. If you are down, the divine consciousness has compassion for you. But if you are too arrogant, then it means you can take a bit more. So get and take. That's a law. It's a law which has taught Milarepa and the spiritual people of the world how to get support from the cosmic consciousness. Nobody gets support from the cosmic consciousness if they are arrogant. Because the divine consciousness considers arrogance and pride a terrible thing. If you kill somebody, you can get away. It can get away. Milarepa killed 35 people by doing black magic. And then he became humble. And guess what? It just went away. But if Milarepa would have been arrogant, then he would have been crushed. For 5,000 years, non-stop. Crushed, 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 crushed. Until he would have said, hold, 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 I give up. The divine consciousness wants you to be soft, open. Arrogance is a manifestation of your ego. Arrogance is a manifestation of your separation. It's a luciferic thing where you can say, I can do without all of you and without God. I can do, I can do. It's not true. This is just the sickness of the ego. And David exposes it in a poem by simply telling you, any one of you here, you feel that the pain in your life is too big? Here is a simple lesson that you got tonight. Lie down quickly and ask for mercy. Because God doesn't kick a fallen person. But if you are standing arrogantly, you are bound to get a lot of kicks. I don't say it. Jesus takes it over. David, the prophet and the king has said it thousands of years ago. This is what I'm talking about. This is a spiritual law and Jesus explains and announces many such laws which are much more subtle than the law of karma. The law of karma is a primitive, simple thing. What you do comes back. 
Good, that's also true. But there are other rules of engagement in this universe which are more difficult to see. And by analyzing the words of Jesus and the actions of Jesus, you discover many of them. That's why the actions and the words of Jesus are uh, a subject of meditation. They are very enlightening. By seeing the way a man like Krishna or a man like Jesus has behaved in this world, we learn a lot. The great, to conclude, the great German writer Hermann Hesse, in his book Siddhartha, the, the hero says, instead of just sitting and studying with Buddha, I would just like to go and see the way Buddha holds his hand. That's enough. Seeing the way Buddha holds his hand speaks more than a discourse. There's something in it, which is a resonance, a direct, a direct transmission. What the yogis call Samyama. It's the same with Jesus. By talking about some of his things, we are actually doing Samyama with Jesus. We are identifying, we are resonating with Jesus. And that is a transmission in itself. That's why I have decided that in this part of this season, I will give you a little bit, a dose of Jesus' words and teachings to revive your hearts and to bring some beautiful aspiration and spiritual knowledge in what you do. With this, we finish for tonight. And I will continue with actual quotes and listings from the Gospel of Luke in the coming weeks. With this, we have finished. <laughs>